Many leaders espouse the value of talking about our failures, but failure is a threat to our ego, so it turns out we're better at learning from the failures of others than we are from our own. In this episode, Amy Edmondson returns to show us how to do a better job of growing when we're in the wrong. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 663. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Oh, how I wish I was never wrong about anything. But of course, I am, and so many of us are on a regular basis. It's just part of work, it's part of leading, and of course, it's part of being human. The question is not so much, are we wrong? The question is, how do we respond when we are? Today, I am so glad to welcome back a guest to the show who is going to help us to respond in a better way when we're wrong. And more importantly, how do we grow from that? I'm so pleased to welcome back Amy Edmondson. She is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, where she studies people and organizations seeking to make a positive difference in the world through the work they do. She has pioneered the concept of psychology psychological safety for over 20 years and is recognized as number one on the Thinkers 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers. She also received that organization's Breakthrough Idea Award in 2019 and Talent Award in 2017. In 2019, she was first on HR Magazine's list of the 20 most influential international thinkers in human resources. Her prior book, The Fearless Organization, explains psychological safety and has been translated into 15 languages. In addition to publishing several books and numerous articles and top academic outlets, Amy has written for or her work's been covered by such outlets as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Financial Times, and many others. Her TED Talk on teaming has been viewed more than three million times. She is the author of Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Amy, so glad to have you back on the show. Well, Dave, thank you. Thank you for having me back, and thank you for that incredibly gracious introduction. I was sharing with you before we started recording that it is really so impressive to me how the term psychological safety comes up in my conversations with engineers, educators, healthcare practitioners, folks from all different fields. I know so many people are studying psychological safety now, but you really put this on the map. Thank you so much for all the work you have done on behalf of all of us of getting better at really creating environments that work so well for people and for teams. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And I have to admit, it has been quite gratifying to see the growth in interest in this topic. And to me, that really represents a growth in awareness of the inherent uncertainty and interdependence and complexity of the world in which we work. And in that kind of world, it is really important that people believe it's safe to speak up and speak up quickly. Yeah, indeed. And I was struck in reading this new book at the start of the book, how you talk about 
your own experience with this and the irony <laughs> of starting to study psychological failure. And you in grad school were studying medical teams and you had made a hypothesis of what you thought was going to happen. I'm wondering if you could share that moment with us and what came out of that, because I think there's a there comes a lot back to <laughs> failure and how we respond when we're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really ironic because it was a study of failures. It was a study of medication errors that lead to adverse drug events for patients in hospitals. So it's a study of failures in I confronted my own failure to get support for my hypothesis and on and on it goes. So it's 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 really a layered moment. But I was a I was I was an early stage PhD student, as all PhD students are required to do. I I had had to get involved in in research. And I was quite fortunate, I would say, to be included in a larger project on medical errors. And this was run by some very prominent physician investigators who were trying to assess the rate of adverse events caused by errors in in hospitals. And they thought, hey, while we're at it, why don't we see whether, as there is in aviation, there might be a relationship between the quality of teamwork in the patient care units and the uh, error uh, results. And mm. and so they invited my advisor, who suggested that I sort of help them out with this project. So my part of the larger study was simply this, um, to assess the relationship between teamwork and error rates. My hypothesis, of course, was that better teamwork would be better coordination and so forth, and that would lead to lower rates of medical error. Now, when I finally got the data, my team assessment, team survey assessment data, and the uh, medical error data collected on a biweekly basis by trained medical investigators, I ran the correlation, and lo and behold, not only was my hypothesis not supported by data, a failure, but it was 180 degrees wrong. In other words, the data were suggesting that better teams had higher, not lower error rates. Now, that was more than disappointing. It was, in a sense, uh, devastating. I was was truly crushed to have my hypothesis not supported to, you know, to experience that failure. I was quite anxious. I thought that would land me in some silly way kicked out of the program. So, you know, I, there I was engaged in research, but I had failed to understand the most basic lesson about being a researcher, which is you are very likely to be wrong in new territory. Anytime you're doing something new and potentially important in new territory, there's a very real chance that your hypothesis will be wrong simply because it's it's unplowed terrain. And so intellectually, I'm sure I understood that, but emotionally, not so much. So so I I felt terrible about it. But then, of course, as one does, you have to pick yourself back up and say, well, why might this be happening? And it occurred to me, almost just a flash of insight, it occurred to me that maybe the better teams aren't making more mistakes, you know, performing more badly, but maybe in fact they're more open about them. Maybe they're more willing to report them and share them. And think about how easy it is really in most work environments, including hospitals, to hide errors. I mean, the ones that have truly consequential uh, outcomes, of course, cannot be hidden, but very few have that, right? Most of them are just 
easy enough to hide. So I began to think maybe the better teams weren't making more mistakes. Maybe they were more willing and able to report them. Mm. And and that was the beginning of that insight, or at least that wasn't certainly wasn't proven yet, but that insight was the beginning to an entirely new research stream on psychological safety, which I'll define as a, a belief that you can speak up, especially with interpersonally threatening content like mistakes or dissent or or a need for help, that you not only can, but you tr- truly must speak up because of what's at stake. And what I had inadvertently discovered was that different groups had very different levels of psychological safety. And ultimately, in those groups where they believed not only can you, but you must speak up and speak up quickly about mistakes and errors, they were better poised to learn and grow and improve quality. And those who could not um, were less so. I wasn't able to prove that in that particular study, but but many subsequent studies were able to show fairly conclusively that that psychological safety is a terrific, it's a measurable property of the interpersonal climate, and it's a terrific predictor of learning behavior and performance in teams. It's really extraordinary when you think about it, as you said, a, a failure in any traditional sense you think about it. And yet, because you were able to stop, think about, okay, what are some other ways I might think about this, that it opened up this whole incredible line of study and research that you focused your career on and so many other people have now too. And I think about like, what if you hadn't? (laughs) What if you had just stopped, right? Or said, forget this, I'm not cut out for this. And I know you had some of those thoughts. And I, I think about that in the context of one of the studies you cite in this book is a study of surgeons. And you write, the surgeons learned more from their own successes than from their own failures, but learned more from others' failures than from other successes. And I think it's interesting how failure just becomes such a threat to our ego, doesn't it? Exactly. Right. So that's a very interesting study by my former student, Brad Stotts, and his colleague, uh, Francesca Gino. And it's, 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 not, it's just big data set and led by Brad. And it's fascinating because in a purely emotion-free world, that difference would not exist, right? As you say, the, the, the data are the same. The, the ability to learn and take away insights from these failures and these successes should be a level playing field. But because of the emotional component of our own failures, which we don't have with respect to other people's failures, we're at risk of blocking the lessons from them. I used to, uh, longtime listeners, Amy, would know that at the end of interviews years ago, I used to ask people, what have you failed at? It was inspired by like when that it was very invoked to like talk about failure. And people would almost always have the same response to that question. They would say something like, oh, great question. I'm so glad you're asking this. And then they would inevitably not really answer it. (laughs) Or or they would sort of give some generic sounding response to it. And I found myself thinking like, why am I even asking this? It's interesting like how we all espouse the value of learning from failure, but when we actually start talking about our own. And I was having dinner with my wife, Bonnie, one night, and I forget what had happened at work, but she made some comment of, it's so impressive when someone's willing to change their mind on something. Mm, And mm. I got to thinking about that and thought, what if I asked that question at the end of conversations instead? And I've now asked people for years, what have you changed your mind on? But I think it's really 
it's it's interesting that the ego piece of it, if you take that away, if you find a way not to threaten the ego so much, right. it opens things up because it's it's as you point out in the book, it's hard to learn if you already know. That's the fundamental challenge, isn't it? Right. And that sounds maybe just a truism or something, but but we dig into that. If if it's hard to learn if you already know. What that really means is A, you fail to be curious. B, quite literally, cognitively, you could miss disconfirming data, the confirmation bias. And three, there's this emotional resistance to learning that you're wrong, right? And so we we cling in a very real way to our knowing. It's a it's a reflex almost to cling to knowing when we have the opportunity to open ourselves up to learning. You talk a ton in the book about framing and how significant yes. that is. And you invite us to think about how we frame failure or being wrong really matters a lot. What do you mean by framing? Framing is the meaning that we attach to to reality, to things, to events in our lives. And you know, we tend to think of the the meaning of an event as just straightforward as as kind of part and parcel of the event itself, but no, it's it's a layer that we have put over it. Maybe a simple way to explain this, is, I use this example in the book, is that some research shows that bronze medalists in, in Olympic competitions are happier with their result than the silver medalists, which is nonsensical because the silvers did better than the, than the bronzes. But the, the bronze medalists will have a tendency, which makes perfect sense, to frame their medal with relative to not having meddled at all. I mean, they they are in a, a state of gratitude for having made it onto the podium. Right? They can ah. easily look to their left and see how easily they could not have, you know, they could have missed it all together, another second of speed or whatever in their sport. And whereas the silver medalists will spontaneously frame their medal with respect to having missed the gold. You know, I missed mm. it by that much. And and feel disappointed. It's not to say it has to be that way, right? That you could certainly help a silver medalist reframe their immense accomplishment relative to the many, many thousands of athletes that would have loved to have been in their shoes, but didn't even make it to anywhere near the the, the team. They're at the very pinnacle of their of their sport, and 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 they can appreciate that, of course. So so. Framing happens automatically. Reframing is a deliberate act of thinking about events in a, I would say, a cool-headed, clear-eyed view to adopt the, a meaning that may be even more accurate and certainly is more helpful and productive. So, with respect to failure, you know, put the Olympic medals aside. Those are so; those are both successes. But with respect to failure, let's say my research failure as a for, you know, first year graduate student, I could say, oh, this is awful and wasted time. And maybe I won't ever be able to graduate or, and all this stuff that I have spontaneously layered onto a simple event, which is that the data didn't support my hypothesis. The correct and healthy thing to do in that moment is to reframe it as, well, this is interesting. No, this isn't what I expected. These are interesting data. What happened here? You know, what might be going on that would explain this result? Because this is simply the result. And what might it mean? And where could I go with it next? In a sense, that reframe is not only more 
healthy and productive, but it's also more forward-looking. It's not, I think we have a spontaneous tendency to look back and wish the past, even the very recent past was different than it is, versus to be looking forward to saying, what next? What do I try now? Yeah. And how do I grow from it, right? Yeah. What do I do with it? It's, it's, it's what is, but I can add, I can layer on a more learning oriented meaning. And really that's, for me, that's the fundamental, there's lots of people who've studied frames and framing in, in cognitive psychology and clinical psychology and so forth. But the fundamental difference in almost every case is a frame of, of kind of knowing and almost it ha- it has a certain negativity for reasons we can get into and a frame of learning and p- and possibility i love the example of jo- dr jonathan cohen an anesthesiologist you mentioned in the book and i think his story is really really beautiful and illustrates that point really well could you share it yes so i i um i had the good fortune to meet D- dr cohen on social media but then i reached out to him and we've had some conversations and what led me to reach out to him is he had tweeted a, a powerpoint slide that he that he uses in talks which has at the heading how do and he's an anesthesiologist in a cancer center you know leading physician in an important role and he said how do i feel how does it feel when someone points out my error and the next line on the slide was actually it feels pretty good. And you're thinking, wait a minute, you know, is this guy for real? It never, <laughs> yeah. it never feels good if someone points out your error. And then he says, Let, let's just to be clear, it didn't always feel that way. But I trained myself to equate someone pointing out my error with the patient getting better care. Uh, and I would add, and it means that you can train yourself to think this too, it means you're a good leader, right? If 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 you've got subordinates um, in those other roles who are willing to say, doc, you just made a mistake, you are a good leader. So for both reasons, and you can feel good about that event when someone points out your error, but Make no mistake, we will not spontaneously feel good about that. We need to train ourselves, which is another way to say, reframe that event as a good thing, which it surely is. Yeah. And I mean, this just goes across so many disciplines. Uh, One of the other Mm -hmm. examples I love from the book is from Larry Wilson, a successful entrepreneur, salesperson. Earlier in his career, (laughs) he started reframing how he did sales calls, didn't he? Yes. So um, Larry was a a high school teacher with six kids and and having trouble making ends meet. So an uncle suggested he go into selling life insurance. And at first, it wasn't going so well. And, and it was discouraging, you know, all of the all of the cold calls that yielded a big fat no, were getting him down and a manager recommended that he reframe his thinking. And he said, you know, a a rookie salesperson on average, it takes eight calls to get a sale. And you get about, this is way back in the, in the early sixties, he says you get, it's about a $200 commission for the salesperson. Uh, And if it takes eight calls to get it, that means each and every one of those calls is worth $25. So Larry decided to train himself to just say, not aloud, but in his own head after each call, whether it was a a win or a lose, he would just say to himself, thanks for the $25. He'd be saying that to the imaginary customer um, or real customer in his his mind. And he said then very quickly, because of that sort of positive forward-facing frame, 
25 soon turned into 50, right? He started having making more more of his sales. He'd make four out of the eight, and pretty soon 50 turns into 100. And he rather astonishingly quickly became extremely successful. And, and then everyone started asking him how he did it. And it turns out he really had reframed the act of selling from one of like, how do I get my money out of your pocket to one of how do I help you? How do I help you solve a problem? And maybe even a problem that at the outset, you don't even know you have. But the fundamentally, his heart was in the right place. I mean, he wanted to make a living, but his heart was in the right place. He really did want to help uh, potential customers with a, a life challenge. There's a story in the book about a scuba diving accident. And uh. As I was reading about it, I was thinking um, my brother and I went and got certified scuba diving like 20 years ago. I haven't been for years, but one of the things I remember from the training was when, if and when you get into trouble underwater, to four things, stop, breathe, think, and act. Those were like the four things that were embedded in the training. And the message is when people get into trouble underwater— the real enemy usually isn't the situation that presents, it's the panic that happens. And so the whole idea is to interrupt that panic. And I was fascinated thinking about that and then thinking about your research and the work of the, the model of that starts with stop, which is disrupt the emotional response. That's really the first, the, the starting point is just to acknowledge the fact that you're going to have pain, you're going to have embarrassment, you're going to have panic, whatever that emotional response is. Right. Step one, you need to disrupt it. Yes. And of course, that is the first and therefore the most challenging of the three steps because you have to find ways to remember to interrupt yourself, right? to, to, to disrupt the automatic emotional response to the stimulus, to the, to the events that happen in your life. And so it is that, and I think that's great with the scuba discipline it's very, very relevant because what, what they're trying to do, I suppose, is make it more automatic, like just drill it in. Right. Yeah. And I, I was really curious about this this disruption piece because I think it's so, it's so critical to like how we think about errors and, and failure. And one of the questions you invite us to think about under the stop part, which is the disruption part, is how was I feeling before this happened? Tell me more about right. that. What's what's significant about that question? Well, I guess it's if because the generally negative uh, event can alter your feelings and alter them quite quickly. You know, you've shifted from probably a state of ne neutral or maybe even happy or positive to a state of anxiety, fear, and sometimes worse. And so, it, I think that's just an anchor to to hang on to 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 go back. To, to help you see that this event, whatever it was, should not have or need not have that kind of power over you. Go back to where you were just a minute ago. Maybe even might have even been excited or anticipating and, and try to try to reconnect with that slightly more positive state. When you see people who are able to learn to do that, to ask like that question, how was I feeling before? To stop that emotional response, what do you find is a starting point that helps us to develop that discipline of just stopping? Well, that's interesting. I don't really know the answer to that question, but my my intuition would be that 
curiosity plays a big role here. And maybe there's just a little bit more openness, a little bit more open-mindedness to the possibility of other interpretations. So quite often people who are very, very smart and very accomplished struggle with this more than others, believe it or not, because they're used to being right. They've been rewarded for being right and, and getting the right answer. And it feels that much more frightening to not measure up in some way. They've got more of their self-image um, tied up in that performance. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it can be a little bit, it's a little bit of the fixed mindset that Carol Dweck writes about studies. Yeah. But, but where, so where does the, I mean, obviously people can be very bright and very accomplished and have curiosity, but how do we nurture it? How do we, how do we hang on to it and nurture it so that the lets that, that there's that little chink in the armor that can let that wonder back in? Like, I wonder what this means rather than I know what this means and it's all sewed up and it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, I think back and like so many times I've caught myself doing that and like, what's different about the times when I can interrupt that? Right. <laughs> but I think it starts with just asking this question. Okay. Yep. And I that's yep. why I think the power of that question specifically, if, how was I feeling before this happened? Like it gets you out of the yeah. immediate moment of yeah. the natural response we all have. And it, it it forces a bit of perspective, whether you do something with it or not, yep. who knows, yep. right? But yep. like it forces some perspective. Well, that's it, right? It reminds you very quickly that there is another way to feel. I just felt it a minute ago, right? There is, yeah. there is, a, there is another state and maybe I can get back there or, or forward to there. Yeah, which is a good then place if you can allow that moment that perspective to come into your thinking the the second step right. of challenge considering if the content of your thoughts are really useful for your goals one of the questions you invite us to ask ourselves here is what other interpretation of the situation is possible so whatever kind of our initial response was like okay how how else might i frame that sounds like that's yeah. that's key in getting that perspective yes. Just for fun, right? Even if you don't believe it, like even if you've got this all sewed up, locked down, you know, this is awful. This is the end of my research career. Just for fun, right? While we're at it, what other interpretation of this situation is at least plausible? Hmm. Well, maybe this is a setback, but not a career-ending moment. Well, that's probably more likely in in uh, ninety nine out of a hundred cases. Yeah, and those three words are so beautiful. Just for fun. <laughs> Just for fun. Yeah, right? that's true. It's true because it's the lighthearted. I, you know, I often think that part of what I'd hoped to accomplish with this book is to help people have a more lighthearted, I don't mean casual or sloppy, but literally lighthearted relationship with failure because failure and fallibility are part of our lives. And so we can, we can, we can just be cooler in our interactions with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, there's something that's really, you know, I think about what we were talking about earlier of how so much about our traditional thinking about failure and our response to it is, is a threat to the ego. And so like thinking mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. it through that more casual, playful lens of like, hey, just for fun, let me think about just another yeah. way I might approach this. Like it gets us a little bit out of that space that makes it more likely yeah. that we're able to kind of look at that bigger perspective. Yeah, and, and the other thing I like, I'd never really thought about this before, but the other thing I like about Just for Fun as a device is it, it, it makes it clear this isn't going to be expensive. 
right? This isn't going to be painful, not going to take a lot of time, like just for fun. What other ways would there be to think about this? What other interpretation of the situation is possible? Yeah, indeed. And 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 then the third step is choose. Say or do something right. that moves you closer to your goals. And one of the questions right. here is, what is going to best help me achieve my goals? And right. I think about that, and I think the, the power there for me is it also invites us to think about, okay, what am I going to do next? Not just in the context of this moment that feels really difficult, but thinking about it through forcing a little bit of us to think about the broader picture, the bigger picture. Yes. And, and yes, so this is a, this is a creative act. And in that sense, I suppose I said the first step is the hardest because I think it's just so easy to even miss the opportunity to stop, to pause. Yeah. The second one, you know, is, is really sort of analytical. It's challenging. It's taking a look at your current interpretation and recognizing that there might be alternatives. But the third one is the most creative because you must now Think of and act on those alternatives and be willing to choose a, a, a healthier, productive one, which means I have to be willing to move away from the notion that I, I just would rather be right. You know, I'd rather be right than effective. And I loved how you opened with, I wish I were, you know, I sure wish I was never wrong. We all have that. We all have that mm, disease, but we yeah. can, I think, learn to overcome it. And this creative opportunity to choose is right there for the grabbing. Yeah. And I think back going to even thinking about disrupting that emotional response, that hard part, right, of stopping is um, there's something about, uh, boy, I've I've caught myself doing this so many times, Amy, and I see it so often in others too, especially if someone's considering like a career change or a big move. I often find myself asking, well, how does this support your longer term goals? Like if you made this shift, what does right. that mean for your five, 10 year plan? And it's interesting, like how often people respond to that with saying some version of, huh, I hadn't really, <laughs> hadn't really thought about that that much yet. And yeah. I think about the same thing too. Like when I've had those career moments too, inevitably I've gotten caught up in the moment and thought like, oh, I need to think about that. And I miss the okay, but so what? Like, what's the bigger picture? And I think that that for me is what's really nice about this third question, the creativity behind it is yes. like, what am I going to do with this that helps me toward my goals? It it brings us back to the bigger picture. Like, okay, it's not just about this moment anymore. It's about the bigger picture. Yes, absolutely. And I sometimes think that the most fundamental shifts, we have two shifts we have to just keep making over and over again from you know, from me to we and from now to later. And oftentimes, I think you're right when people are, you know, they're fed up, they're unhappy, they want to make some shift. But it's very now. It's very well, I'm, you know, I'm uncomfortable, I'm happy. So I'm, I'm getting out of here. But they haven't, you know, it is it is surprising, but maybe not surprising. They haven't really thought about it with respect to the longer term aspirations where am i going where do i want to go and what will that require for me today and it won't always be fun and games what i need to do today in order to arrive where i want to arrive down down the road in a, in a piece and and me you know sometimes we just get so caught up in what do i want how do i feel what do i need right now we we fail to say yeah but what do other people need from me and there's real joy 
in being able to provide for other people what they need from you and vice versa. There's a there's a mutuality of it. We sometimes call that teamwork that is a very pleasurable experience. All right, we've covered about seven or eight pages of the book, Amy. There's so much more. Um, we're, <laughs> we're sidestepping a ton. There's three different kinds of failure. There's a ton of examples you you bring in the book. I mean, there's so much more that are way beyond the starting point here. So I invite folks to uh, pick up the book if this has been helpful to you as a starting point to get into a lot more of the details, so many of the practical things that Amy presents through her research. Amy, I've got one final question for you. I mentioned it earlier, the what you've changed your mind on question. The last time you were on, we talked about the fearless organization and psychological safety. Uh, It's been a few years since that book came out. And I'm curious now, thinking back, since that book's come out and, and all the success that's come with it, what, if anything, have you changed your mind on? Yeah. Well, I, I think the most important thing, and this is a this is a work in progress, but I think the most important thing is because I had studied psychological safety for so long, and there really is some robust research evidence of its of its value in such things as learning and performance. I've focused in on it. Right? I focused in on it. I wrote a whole book about it, and I I continue to believe this is a really important climate factor. Right? This this climate variable that, that as we said at the beginning, is about is about a belief that you really can speak up with interpersonally challenging, risky uh, content for the good of the team and the organization. But I think what I underplayed and underestimated and and even have understudied to date is the scale part. It's psychological safety. I want. I don't want to say it's not enough, even though that's a true statement. It's not enough, but it it. It is enacted through some very skilled behaviors, the kinds of behaviors you're illustrating through your questions, you know, that, that you're, you're asking questions with a sense of genuine curiosity, with, an, with, with, I think, an intent to draw me out and so forth. That's a skill. And I think people are thinking, and partly my fault, about psychological safety as some sort of magical factor that should be put in place and now we'll be okay. Well, it doesn't get put in place, right? It gets enacted day in and day out through skilled behavior that I best I can best capture as learning behavior. And you can see the connection between this and what we've been talking about so far. But it's, you know, choosing learning and then having the skill to enact it and make it clear to others that you have chosen learning and that part of the learning you're hoping for is to learn from them that's not easy, right? It's much harder than I think it first appears and far more, far more of an important component in this whole domain. Amy Edmondson is the author of Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Amy, thank you so much for all your work. My pleasure. Thank you. If this conversation was helpful for you, three related episodes I'd recommend. One of them was the last time Amy was on the show, episode 404, How to Build Psychological Safety. If you've ever heard that term, or like many folks in our listening community, have worked on building psychological safety within your team or organization, you have Amy Edmondson to thank for that. She's really at the forefront of the groundbreaking research that's been done on psychological safety over the years. In episode 404, we looked at some of the key details 
uh, the tactics and where to begin. A great compliment to this conversation, of course. Also recommended is episode 448, The Value of Being Uncomfortable with Neil Pazrika. Neil and I talked about this uncomfortable reality that discomfort tends to be a pretty good indicator that we're being pushed in a new way. It's not discomfort for discomfort's sake, of course, but discomfort when we're learning and growing and, yes, failing and getting things wrong is an indicator that we're trying things new. It's an indicator we're being pushed. We talked about how to really utilize that, how to learn from that and grow from that in episode 448. And then finally, I'd recommend, of course, the work of Annie Duke, episode 607, How to Quit Bad Stuff Faster. Sometimes when we do error, make a wrong, go the wrong direction, it means that we should stop doing what we're doing. We fight this cultural mantra many of us have heard all the time of uh, winners never quit. The reality is, is that the most successful people uh, decide to regularly quit things that are not working for them, not serving their organizations. But how do you decide when that is the right time? In episode 607, Annie and I talked about her research on when to stop and, of course, her more broad research on decision-making, a must-listen. If you find yourself in that place right now, should I keep doing something or not? Should I set something aside? I think episode 607 will really help you to frame that well. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. We have this episode filed under personal leadership because so much about leadership does begin with us. It does. It is not about us, but it does begin with looking at ourselves first. And this conversation today with Amy, so much in the spirit of that. Many other conversations we've had over the years on personal leadership, but also dozens and dozens of other topic areas inside of the free membership. You can find exactly what you're looking for that's relevant to you right now on the website by setting up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com and then going into the episode library where you'll be able to search by topic for all of the past episodes. It's a great starting point. If you don't know where to start, begin there with what's most relevant to you right now. Plus, you get access to all of the benefits inside of the free membership. And one of those benefits is my weekly guide that comes to you on email each week. Usually toward the end of the week, I send out a message with the details of each episode each week, the relevant links, the episodes I've recommended, as I just did a moment ago, those will come later on this week. And then also, usually two or three articles, podcasts, videos that I found throughout the week that I think are things should that should be on your radar screen that you should know about that will help support your leadership development, and often a quote from one of the books we featured on a past episode. All of that's inside of the weekly guide each week. It's one of the key benefits inside of your free membership. To set that up, just go over to coachingforleaders.com. And if you're looking for a bit more, I am regularly writing and sharing my thoughts and integration of all the experts that have come on the podcast and sharing those with our members inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. If you'd like to hear more from me, receive my writing, more of my thoughts, more of my integration between all of the experts we've had on the show, go over to coachingforleaders.plus. Details there on all of the benefits. That's just one of the key benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Priest. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Marcus Collins to the show. Marcus and I are going to be discussing the reason people make buying decisions. Key, key insight on what we need to know as leaders of why people decide to engage with our organizations and what we can do 
to influence that well. Join me for that conversation with Marcus next Monday, and I'll see you back then.